It is the Brad and Brit cast. We're glad you are with us. If you uh, join us live in the one thirty hour, we apologize for being a bit late. We had uh, what they call technical difficulties. And we have one of those slides from 1956 to put up on the screen to show you <laughs> that there's a problem. All right, we're, do that. we're not going to do that. Park Pewterbaugh is with us. And uh, just for fun, Park, I, I Googled your name. And the first thing that comes up is your interview in Rolling Stone with the monkeys from many years ago. Then, then a little bio on you about your teaching at uh, Guilford College these days, part-time lecturer, lecture of music, your address. And then under a site called Please Kill Me, <laughs> it talks about how you've been writing about music for 40 years. You've been published in three dozen magazines. And, so it's very, and then it goes through your books. It's very, very impressive. And in all sincerity, we are we are again honored to be able to talk to you and have you on with us on the, even on a day like today where we're not going to be able to go as long as we want to because we know you have to to run and that's not a lie like they do on talk shows. <laughs> the person, the person really doesn't want to be there. Welcome to the Brad and Britcast. Good to be here, guys. Good to see you again. All right. Um, there's a couple uh, uh, things we want to cover here, and I want to start off with Jimmy Buffett, okay, because we are perennially asking questions about why isn't this person in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Why isn't that person in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? And the first thing on Jimmy Buffett is, well, he's, he's too country. That's always, that's always a, a cheap default. Sure. And then I noticed that yesterday's the 50th anniversary of the death of Jim Croce in that air, terrible airplane crash. And I thought, well, wait a minute, he's not in either. And he had a, yes, a short career, but an incredible career for those several years, several just massive albums, massive hits, massive respect as a songwriter and a singer and guitar player. I'm going to throw those two names out at you first and let you mill them around. Well, first of all, I think Jimmy Buffett should be in there. I'm rather shocked that he isn't because my old boss, Jan Wenner, uh, was <laughs> friends with him. Um, and Jan, of course, wielded great control at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for a long time. And, uh, you know, so that is a conundrum to me that I just do not understand because, you know, Buffett, oh, you know, my God, created an entire subculture around his music, around the lifestyle he sang about. And uh, a very solid songwriter who, you know, started in Nashville and uh, and then became, you know, the voice of the Florida Keys lifestyle. And um, I, you know, people focus in on on his best known songs. You know, Come Monday, Margaritaville, Finn's Boat Drinks, ah, la la, on and on and on. I, there's some very solid songwriting on those albums. I love the album A1A. I think it's brilliant. Um, he just inhabited And then from Florida, he went to Montana and did changes in attitude, changes in latitude. I don't even have to argue the case for him being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's a mystery to me, except that there are certain rock critics in there who probably think he's a lightweight white guy promoting 
uh, a lifestyle that's uh, kind of frivolous and not up to their exacting standards of, you know, that, that's all I can figure. You know, there's some anti-critic bias in play against him. Now, I'm not sure I've ever even seen his name on the ballot sheet. I mm -hmm. could be wrong, but I don't even think he's been nominated which I just find to be an egregious omission. And, and what about uh, Jim Croce? Now, if you die in an airplane, I think you're, it's automatic entry into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, is it not? Yes, uh, the uh, airplane. Or, uh, they should create a special place for those who uh, die in crashes of any kind, airplane, car. Uh, but yeah, Croce's a talent. I think of him as maybe more of a, middleweight talent whereas jimmy buffett is a heavyweight talent and in you know down the line maybe uh yes to crouchy but i think buffett should have been inducted uh you know much closer to his first year of eligibility now if i'm not mistaken I'm trying to think when his first album is around 1970 that his first that is the uh rule that is the ground rule in the rock and roll hall of fame 25 years at least must have passed since the release of the first album under the name you're being inducted in. so mm -hmm. his first album came out obscure record on the barnaby label sold like 250 copies and uh you know but that's his first album so just saying it came out in 1970 he should have been eligible in 1995, and here we are in 2023. I don't get it. Well, plus your old boss, Jan Winter, famously loves stuff that sells, and, and the guy sold, like, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of records and a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of concert tickets. Well, well, that's my point, that Jan alone was not enough to yeah. get, rock, uh, get him into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. There's a lot of critic type folks who uh, maybe are disinclined to reward him for promoting margaritas and a, and a, you know, kind of itinerant lifestyle. Uh, I don't, I don't understand. I don't understand. Uh, he really created an, an, an entire industry based on touring, like almost nobody ever has. And now, I mean, it's gone beyond music. It's lifestyle. Right. He has the biggest base of fans who are, aside from deadheads, I can't think of anyone that's more bonded to a performer than those uh, parrotheads were and are. And, you know, there's Margaritaville uh, retirement communities now. Oh, my God. Seriously. Where well, people, yeah. If, if, if again... And because I'm such a uh, such a brilliant thinker, I googled Jimmy Buffett's name, and here's what you get, just right from the top down under Jimmy Buffett legacy. Number one, story of his food legacy. Number two, uh, an immortal legacy on the cruise industry. God. Number three, an immortal legacy on the music industry uh, than on you know the real estate industry, like you just said, and uh, they're about to open a new Margaritaville uh, right outside of Cincinnati on the Kentucky side, $140 million <laughs> resort. Oh my God. 
it just doesn't stop. I, well, and, and and I think Park's right. You got these these forty or forty five year olds that think that they're the modern reincarnation of Lester Bangs that don't want Jimmy Buffett soiling their Hall of Fame. Is that is that what you're saying? Uh, essentially, that's it. Now, I can't I can't vouch for that because I'm not in those meetings, you know. Right. But I just think it's very odd that somebody so popular with so many gold records and platinum records and somebody who is is really uh i don't know anybody who has probably sold more concert tickets than jimmy buffett and he died a billionaire um i mean not that money should have anything to do with it but maybe he will get in the cruise ship hall of fame before he gets right. in the rock and roll hall of fame or the restaurant hall of fame <laughs> something like that which brings us to your old boss, uh, Jan Winter, and this segment is called Let's Beat Up on Jan Winter, which I, I don't want to do because he's getting all sorts of shit in the media and all over the place, but it's kind of difficult to defend. They kicked him famously off of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame board because of some comments he made around this new book saying that uh, there, there's no there's no women in this thing and there's there seems to be a, a real lack of, you know, black folks in this thing. And, and why is that? And he particularly was dismissive of the comments and said that there were just no women that were on the intellectual uh, level of what he was looking at. Uh, just your initial thoughts at, at the, the comments from Jan and, and what you thought when you read this stuff. Well, I was stunned that somebody who had shepherded a publication that was all about investigative journalism and getting to people to trip them, trip, up over their own feet and say controversial things and admit things that they didn't want out in public, that he would fall into that trap himself. Um, he could have given a very reasonable answer to that question, which is in the decade of the 70s, which is when I was doing interviews, these were my friends. These were the people I interviewed. I didn't interview a lot of people. He didn't, have, you know, he was. He didn't have that many bylines. He was the editor and publisher and founder of the magazine. So uh, he could just reasonably say, these were the people that I was closest to, that I talked to on a philosophical level about rock and roll. And yes, it is not diverse, but these are the interviews that I treasure the most, that go the most in the greatest depth. And... Uh, Leave it at that. Well, he, he grew up, like many of us, and I'll just take myself, I grew up and, and moved several times, and uh, I hate to say that. I'm going to admit this now. Most of my friends were white. Mm -hmm. That's just the way the world was. Right. Uh, that, that doesn't mean that all these years later I, I would just stand up and say, well, it's a, the white people were, they were the good people because they were my friends. And those other people that I, I, I didn't know, his dismissiveness of Aretha Franklin and Stevie Wonder, and this one really frosts me, Marvin Gaye. Yeah. That Marvin Gaye, he didn't think had the intellectual chops, that he just didn't have the, the basis of the true spirit of rock and roll that the seven guys who are... Um, uh, part of of his book mick jagger john lennon etc et, et it would have been i think you're right part it would have been so easy for him to say you know what in retrospect 
I wish I would have back then been a little bit more open and uh, gotten beyond my, my sphere of, of comfort. That's what that was. He was comfortable with all those people, just like people right now in this country who are siloed off and everybody's living now in places that are a lot more like them than the other people. So, you know, the, the political map is all screwed up and, and, and he, He's 77 years old. Here we go again. I feel like we're having the Donald Trump, Joe Biden too old. They're going to say stupid shit. And then we are supposed to excuse it. Well, just maybe Jan Wenner should have stopped doing interviews when he was 68. <laughs> no, it's it just it's it's sad. Well, I don't I, I, yeah. contemporary any of these interviews are. I think the majority of them are drawn from the the 70s and the early 70s at that but uh um uh jan i almost hate to say it but to me in a way he is like the liberal donald trump meaning that uh you know he he's a narcissist um he's kind of wrapped up in himself um his insecurities uh just create a situation where he uh, needs to feel important all the time. And um, I just, uh, uh, I think that maybe in a way he's, he's kind of socially maladapt. And, and uh, I, it even occurred to me that this um, outburst of his was the product of maybe an early sign of dementia, you know, or look at look at what Alice Cooper and Carlos Santana have said lately. And would you have ever thought you'd hear that kind of talk from their mouths? Well, no. Yeah, it's disturbing. And I, I just when so when you heard the remarks and when you saw the remarks, did this resemble the guy that you knew and and worked with, you know, forty years ago, whatever it was? Did did you say, well, oh yeah, that's definitely him, or did you go, God, that that doesn't sound like Jan Winter to me? Uh, no, it didn't really sound like Jan Winter to me, you know, Jan was, um, uh, really kind of a fun guy and he was very charming. If you, you know, when people would come up to the office and he'd be around and pass by and I'd introduce him and he's just, he could not have been more, more charming. Um, uh, I've been called on the carpet many times in his office. In fact, my cubicle literally was five feet from his office door. So I saw all the comings and goings for about five years when I was on staff. And then I uh, uh, quit my, you know, I was the copy chief then. I was doing a fair amount of writing, but I wanted to be a full-time writer. But I was in doing uh, copy, head of the copy department, department of four people who did the heavy line editing at the magazine. So. And I loved editing, but I really wanted to write. I wanted to be a rock writer. And I knew I couldn't do it if I didn't quit that job. So I, I quit on great terms and wrote for them for the next 20 years. So I have a 25-year history there. But five years, I was on site. And uh, at one point, when I started out, my little cube, copy editor's cubicle was literally outside his door. So I could hear him you know, calling for whoever and whatever, get Jackson Brown on the phone or, you know, that kind of thing um, all day long <laughs> for a number of years. 
And he would have never made a gaffe like that back then, which makes me wonder, why did he do it now? What kind well, of... The, the infamous story about uh, the Jim DeRogatis story, which we talked about last time you were on, where Jim DeRogatis, whose Sound Opinions is the name of the podcast that you hear on a lot of the public radio stations and stuff. And he was a writer for Rolling Stone for a minute, and he wrote a, a negative review of Fairweather Johnson, the second Hootie and the Blowfish album. And Jan goes, no, that's not going to happen. We're not, we're not running that. I think what Jan thought was, well, Hootie and the Blowfish, they've got a black lead singer. I helped them out then. I've done enough for the black man. That'll be it for me. Thank you. <laughs> uh, you know, when you look at the history of, I mean, if you look back at the covers, look at the covers in the 70s, Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder and Diana Ross were all on the covers. Yeah. And it, it wasn't like you never saw a black face on the cover of Rolling Stone. Maybe you saw Bruce Springsteen too many times. Um <laughs> But if you look at Rolling Stone up, up until it severed, Jan, 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 Jan sold it and was severed like in 2019. For God's sakes, the last 20, 30 years has been hip hop cover artists. Uh, it's really tried to follow the trends. And um, in no way do I think there is a, a, a lack of representation of black artists in in Rolling Stone, you know, in fact, it probably went further in the direction of hip hop than my taste would have preferred. Um, but, you know, it, the idea, everybody's piling on and I think they're kind of missing some of the factuality and nuance um, of the situation. No help to Jan's mouth, you know, because he, he really stuck his foot in it. Well, I think it's also like a, a lack of reflection. You're you're a very wealthy, privileged white guy. Now, you may have worked hard to earn all of the money and get the position that you're in, but you still have to realize to society when you're out there mouthing off like that, you just look like a very white, privileged dude on a throne kind of talking down to, to a lot of people. That's what it looks like. I, I would say he's really kind of fallen out of touch. Mm -hmm. to think that that kind of statements would wash in 2023. Um, you know, and I, as, as I told somebody, even if he believes that garbage privately, for God's sakes, don't utter it in front of a New York Times interviewer who's even giving you the chance to sort of correct yourself. <laughs> and that's why I just wonder. I just wonder what, what his kind of mindset is, is right now. But uh, he really took himself... Well, yep. took himself we, we down do and the, believe uh, me there's no waiting for this moment we're waiting for the opportunity because and maybe with good reason you know people that got bad reviews in rolling stone people that writers that got us uh, uh you know had bad experiences with the magazine i don't know but it seems like the world is like oh the gates have opened up the floodgates and it's like all right Jan. It's your turn to suffer now. In the early 70s, starting in the late 70s, the magazine comes along in 1967 with the rise of FM radio. And FM radio rock, album-oriented rock in the 70s, was pretty damn white. Very if I white. may say so myself. <laughs> Extremely it's, white. <laughs> whether it's Yes or Rush or Foreigner, it would just go on and on and on and on. 
and uh, I'm struggling right now. To, besides Jimi Hendrix, okay. Well, the guy he, for thin, the guy from Thin Lizzy, Phil Linnett, he was a black right, guy. They, left, they would play that he guy. Was, died in 1970. <laughs> yeah. So we really can't count him. So that was the world that Jan Wenner really was was part of and, and trafficked in and, and helped promote. And those were the times. And music was segregated radio my god was segregated for the most part um the great top 40 stations of the day were already fading away everything had started to splinter and it was perfect for rolling stone they had their audience of uh, just uh, white guys just younger white guys that was the core audience i want to take the hand off from you on that there's nothing to apologize for if you say this is the context that's when these interviews were made Here's the book 50 years later, but he couldn't do that. He had to, he had to, to, to circle around and throw dirt on everyone who, who wasn't in there just because the writer at the times brought up the subject of, I noticed that there are seven white guys. What's the deal? And he, he took the bait. Yeah. He took the bait. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. Um, I, I would counter that, you know, every, when you talk about Rolling Stone, it isn't just John Winter. He isn't a king on the throne who was dictating everything that was published in the magazine. Uh, I would say a lot of the writers of that time, whether it was you know Robert Palmer, Greel Marcus, John Landau, had a serious grounding in black music and recognized that rock and roll came from black music, rhythm and blues and blues and all that. And there was a fair, the second cover artist in Rolling Stone, issue number two, John Lennon was the first issue. Tina Turner was the second issue. Mm. Um, there was, I, I, if you go back through those old issues, I think there was pretty uh, solid coverage of what was going on in, even in the 70s, in the world of disco. You know, they, then, then uh, uh, Jan Wenner is the, worst defense attorney on his own behalf since oh donald trump oh yeah there's the donald trump comparison right there and and putting his foot in it um maybe the work did speak for itself that's what you say with no reason to disagree with what you're saying but he couldn't uh he couldn't summon that up at the moment yeah yes and and that's what surprised me he spent a lifetime in journalism and when confronted with a journalist, he wound up really kind of uh, taking, uh, just creating a great amount of uh, trouble for himself. And I find that surprising, especially for an interviewer. You, t- you know, he criticizes the black and female artists for lack of articulation. Well, he po- very poorly articulated his own uh, case in that instance. You know, a lot of folks uh, jumped on the little nugget in there where he admitted that he allowed John Lennon essentially to edit his own interview from 1970. That was Jan Wenner's mistake last week with the New York Times. He should have demanded they could re-edit <laughs> what he said to take out the inflammatory stuff. But in this case, he might not have even realized. If you had given him the opportunity to edit that, he might have said, I don't see what anything is wrong in there. I'm, I'm cool with everything I said. Well, he did. He did say, you know, maybe I'm just old and don't give a fuck. Is what he said <laughs> in the interview. 
And, uh, you know, that's a, <laughs> well, then you're going to live with the consequences. Uh, you know, there's, there's that. And, uh, what, what else struck me about that, that interview? Oh, the comment about the UVA rape story, the famous oh. UVA rape story that wound up losing an awful lot of value for Rolling Stone. Mm. You know, it, it just was a disaster. I mean, the Columbia University Journalism Review did a case study of that um, at Jan's behest. He hired them to found all kinds of problems with the magazine and it's, uh, you know, shoddy, the shoddy fact checking of that story. And, uh, you know, it, journalism 101, uh, it was a disaster, and he leapt to the defense of it. He said, except for the fact that the girl was not raped, everything in that story was bulletproof. <laughs> there again, I just don't know what to say. And then he said, you know, about every 50 years, this will happen to a publication. You know, it happened to the Washington Post, happened to the New York Times. And Well, you know, I'm no offense, but the Rolling Stone is not the Washington Post or the New York Times, and they were able to deal with really horrendous plagiarism scandals or things of that sort uh, a lot more professionally than, than what Rolling Stone did. Because if I recall, when the story came out, they really stonewalled it. They doubled down and said, we're right, we're right, and then they weren't right. And that's the worst that's the worst outcome when you do something that bad, when you when you blow it that badly. Well, it resulted in a bloodletting. The managing editor was, resigned. Um, that the writer's never been heard from again. Um, and and Jan, to his credit, did hire the Columbia Journalism Review to do a uh, you know to go over that story, and they printed the results in the magazine. Uh, but but. Still, it really should have never happened. And I mean, if I was in the copy department and handed that story, that would have raised all kinds of red flags to me. But, uh, you know, I, you know, and that kind of thing wasn't isolated either. I mean, the, the bad decision to put the Boston bomber on the cover of the magazine like he was a rock star. There was just a series, a succession of things. You become so caught up in, you know, gotcha journalism and gratuitous controversy and, you know, all of this eye-catching stuff to sell copies instead of just being a solid publication. Well, uh, funny because right now, at least in the last few years, I guess I could even say Rolling Stone, their journalism makes a lot of news and very often for the right reasons. In fact, was it yesterday or the day before? They're the ones that I think broke the story about Trump being scared out of his mind and asking questions about is, am I going to have to wear an orange jumpsuit? <laughs> am I going to be in a nice prison or an ugly prison? I mean, that that's good stuff. That That's <laughs> real good stuff. The um, new managing editor who was brought in is, uh, um, he came from, what was that, what is that, not Politico, but something, something similar. Mm -hmm. So he's very much believes the Rolling Stone can be, like it used to be, a mix of music coverage and political coverage and lifestyle coverage, but 
basically music and politics. Um, I would argue maybe that given the state of contemporary music, you it's going to be hard to find an audience that is both in to reading in-depth coverage of uh, the horrors of the Republican Party, intelligent people that are engaged with politics, who are also huge fans of Cardi B and Ariana Grande. And, you know, that's that's the problem. How do you cobble an audience together from such disparate areas? I think it's uh, I think it's a great uh, point. And when you when you said the thing, uh, the quote from him about maybe I'm just too old to give a fuck, it does seem like the babies, the baby boomers have finally come all the way around to become their parents. And right. with that, <laughs> with <Right>. that, <laughs> I give you the Eric Clapton and Stephen Stills fundraiser for Robert Francis Kennedy Jr., uh, I, I, I know that Stephen Stills, when he was asked, was going, ah, I'd like to back away from a few of those statements, if I might. So you're, you're seeing some of these older musicians as they go out, they're like, whoa, the Kennedy family. I, I love the Kennedy family, and I'm, I'm going to cling to this guy. Now, it's the most crazy ones. Somehow, and I don't know what happened to Eric Clapton. I don't know. I know around COVID is when we finally saw his craziness finally go forward. But it seems like there are some people who have uh, affixed themselves to this Robert F. Kennedy Jr. guy who you don't hear much about these days. For a while, you heard something about him, but not so much. And now a few musicians like Stephen Stills are having to just kind of back away a little bit from this guy. Yeah, I know. I mean, yeah. Eric Clapton and Van Morrison with their anti-vaxxing attitudes coming across like grumpy old half-senile uncle you know the crazy uncles who are just doddering around saying whatever comes into their head without filters um you know that's and their music yeah i try to separate their music from these later chapters where they're being idiots and you sooner or later you have to do that <laughs> separate the music from and you know just say there's a line in time after which this guy became somebody I, I really have a hard time uh, following what he's talking about. But the music was great for 40 years or so, and, and uh, that's what I'll focus on. I won't obsess about his anti-vaxxing nuttiness. I think that maybe some of them are just, as you said, turning into their, you know, their fathers. They're turning in, they're becoming grumpy old men. And you didn't think this would happen in rock and roll, but to a certain degree, it was inevitable. When you were there in the 80s, was there really a rivalry between like Spin Magazine and Rolling Stone? Because people, it's hard for a lot of people now to imagine it, but those two magazines could create a lot of problems in the rock atmosphere. I know that Eddie Vedder famously thought that, that Rolling Stone and Spin Magazine caused a lot of the friction between him and Kurt Cobain back in the day. Was there any kind of talk around the office or even kind of just even overtly that there was some sort of rivalry between Rolling Stone and Spin Magazine? I was there when the first magazine uh, issue of Spin arrived at the office in Rolling Stone. I remember it. And um, I think in Bob Guccione Jr.'s mind, he would have loved to have believed there was some rivalry or competition. Um, I, it was not not something that really crossed a lot of people's minds at, at Rolling Stone. It was more of a pesky fly than, than anything that really threatened the 
foundations of, of Rolling Stone. And at that point in time, Jan was really kind of building a, a journalistic empire. He he acquired Us magazine. He started this magazine, Family Life. He was, you know, the Rolling Stone Press was blowing and going. So I think he was thinking on a bigger scale. And like I said, nobody was too upset about spin. It was just another, it was, uh, they would have loved for there to be a rivalry, but I don't really remember any any uh, concern. Good, good, good for him because uh, when Britt and I worked in in rock radio, whenever a new station would come on the dial, down the dial, wherever we would be working, they would be panicking. They'd be <laughs> Freak out. They'd go crazy. They would go nuts. It'd be the end of the world. Yeah. yeah so you guys said you guys at Rolling Stone, you were kind of like, uh, well, that's nice. That's cute. That's a cute little magazine that you got going there, Bob Guccione Jr. But we're we're, we're going to just kind of do our thing. Um, yeah, it, it was it was like that. Uh, you know, uh, there was frustration on the Rolling Stone staff that we weren't allowed to do our thing, mainly because of Jan's inherent conservatism and pref preference for the older. Uh, classic rock guys he did he really was not on board with new wave and punk rock and alternative music so but and there was a huge there was a great staff of music writers really cool people you know kurt loader and fred shores and and um and robert palmer of course and uh was, and these people were really tuned in to what was going on and and Charles M. Young was another good one. Uh, there is a, just an abundance of talent. But uh, uh, once again, talking, sh throwing shade on Young, but he, he really was not uh, wildly into all the new directions and dimensions in music at that time. Park, we appreciate you uh, spending time with us here. We, uh, we know that... Uh... You've got to run along. Uh, I know you're going to be on uh, several different programs this afternoon. You're already booked in. <laughs> yeah. Things to do. Park Pewterball, he's the best. He's the best. We love talking, love to, talking you. to you. Yeah, same here, guys.